I hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. When it's closer now than it's ever been, I can almost hear the trumpet as Gabriel sounds the call and at the midnight cry we'll be going home when Jesus Steps out on a cloud to call his children. The dead in Christ shall rise to meet him in the air. Then those that remain. the midnight cry we'll be going home I look around I see prophecies the signs of the times they're appearing everywhere I can almost see the Father saying son go get my children oh at the midnight
Thank you, Brother Roger. Great song. Thank you so much for leading us in worship today. Take your Bible now and turn to the book of Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 to verse 26. We prepare to come to the Lord's table and celebrate His supper. I want to ask the question this morning, what really happened at the cross? What really happened at the cross? The next uh, week we get into September and I'll be back in the book of 2 Thessalonians preaching through that book. But prepare for the Lord's Supper. I want to bring this message today from Romans uh, chapter 3. Sometime back, a number of years ago, I was watching a special on ABC News about the church in America. And it was hosted by Peter Jennings. That tells you how long ago this has been. But he sat down and part of the program was interviewing one of the most well-known church pastors in America. He was talking about how his church was different from most traditional churches. He said, I look around this building, it's not a traditional church building. For example, I don't see any crosses anywhere. And the pastor said, well, we think it's a little unwise to try and reduce Christianity down to a single symbol. I thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course you can reduce it down to a single symbol. It's the cross. It's the cross. That's why you see this cross up here. That's why you see crosses all over our church. You walk into our house, you're going to see crosses everywhere. You come through the front door, we have a cross wall with about 25 crosses there. All over our house, crosses are going to be looking at you. Because the cross is so central. What did Paul say in Galatians 6.14? He gloried only in the cross. He gloried only in the cross. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. The world is going to mock at the cross. The world doesn't take any stock at all on the cross. It doesn't make any sense to an unsaved world, but to us as believers, it is the very core of our faith. You want to know if a teacher is a true teacher or a false teacher? A very simple test. How central is the cross to his message? It's that simple. If something else is at the center of his message, he's a false teacher. But what happened there that makes the cross so important? That's what I want to think about this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 to verse 26. Very familiar passage. I invite you to stand with me. We look at this passage together. And ask what God will say to us as we prepare to come to His table today. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. 
Let's join together in prayer. Fathers, we prepare to come to your table today. Instruct us again about the cross. About the meaning of it. What happened there. The price Jesus paid for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The passage I just read to you is the heart of Romans. It's really the heart of Romans. Martin Luther said it's the chief point, the central place of the whole Bible. Somebody else said this is the most important paragraph ever written. That's not an overstatement. It's the heart of this book. You go through the first two and a half chapters of Romans, Paul tells us what is wrong with the human race. That we have sinned. We cannot save ourselves. We all stand before God condemned. Our mouths are closed. We have nothing to say. We have nothing to say in our defense. Nothing to offer in our defense. But then he begins to tell us the solution here in this passage. In verses 19 and 20, he summarizes up that all of us, all the world just stands guilty before God. But then in verse 21, he starts off with two little words. But now. But now. That is very significant. You could preach a whole sermon just on those two words, but now. Sixteen times in Paul's epistles, he uses that little phrase to set a contrast between what he said before and what he's saying now. But now, in spite of what has happened to man, here's man's problem, but now, here's what God has done about it. So you see why this passage is the central place of the entire Bible. The whole truth to the whole Bible is summarized up right here. Man was hopeless. He could do nothing to put himself in a right relationship with God. God's solution was the cross. It was the cross. What happened there? These verses tell us. Verses 23 and 24. We're told here that God's grace was poured out. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You learned that verse when you were a little kid, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I first learned that verse when I was a little child, you know, at first I kind of, it was kind of a relief to me. I thought, oh, well, good. Everybody sinned, not just me. <laughs> a little bit of a sigh of relief, but then as I came to understand that a little better, I thought, that's not really good news. Because everybody has sinned. Everybody is under the same condemnation. As parents, did you ever have your kids uh, want to do something when they were young, and they tell you, well, everybody else is doing it. So what would you tell them? Well, if everybody jumps off a cliff, are you going to go with them? That's probably what you told them, right? Huh. <laughs> Well, that's sort of the feeling I got for a while there. I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm okay because everybody's sinned. But then I didn't realize, no, what that means is everybody is under God's condemnation. Everybody's under God's wrath. But we are saved as a gift of His grace. A gift of His grace. Grace is what you need, but you don't deserve. <clears throat> and none of us deserves salvation. Grace. It's all of God's Grace. Salvation is a gift we cannot earn. You couldn't do enough works to make yourself acceptable to God. Salvation comes as a free gift to you and I, but it's a costly gift. It costs somebody something. There's no such thing as a free ride in life. Nothing's really free, right? Somebody has to pay for it. Somebody paid for salvation, and the somebody was Jesus Christ. But you know, somehow we as human beings have a hard time accepting something being free. We, we think that we can somehow contribute to salvation. We think somehow we can do something that's going to make some points with God. So we come to church and we do good works. We try to avoid bad habits. We give money. You know, we do things like that. Thinking somehow that will make some points with God. 
and it doesn't. Those types of outward actions that we do have nothing to do with whether or not a person is saved and on their way to heaven. The only thing we can do is trust in Jesus Christ. It's not based on our performance, but on Christ's performance. He says here is a free gift, and we are justified and redeemed. Now, that's two big words I want to talk about for just a few moments. And a third word will come a little bit later on. But first of all, justified or justification. That word means to declare one righteous, to declare someone righteous. We stand in a court, we stand condemned, but instead of condemning us, the judge instead pronounces us righteous. How can he do that? Because somebody has stepped in and paid the price, has paid our fine, has taken the penalty for us. That's what Jesus did for us. God declares you justified, not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus Christ. He paid the price. Not only does God declare you not guilty, He also credits you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus took your sin, but in return, you are now credited with His righteousness. That's incredible. That's amazing. Think of somebody putting a, a deposit in your bank account that you didn't earn, that you didn't work for. You are credited with that. We are now standing in a right relationship, justified before God. The second word is redeemed or, or redemption. Now the first term is from the, the, the court system. The second term is from the slave market. Over half the people of the Roman Empire were slaves. And a slave could not free himself. One slave could not free another slave. Only a free person could set a slave free. Only a free person could set a slave free. So we're in a slave market of sin and we cannot get ourselves out of it. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of it. Jesus Christ is the one who had to pay the price to get us out, to redeem us. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now sometimes uh, people have misunderstood that, that term ransom a little bit. In the early church, there was the idea among some that uh, in a sense God had paid a ransom to the devil to free us. Well, if that was true, that's making the devil more powerful than God. Now in a sense, you might almost say that God paid the ransom to himself. Because he was the one who demanded righteousness. So, God's grace was poured out at the cross. God's grace was poured out. In verses 25, another thing we see that happened at the cross is God's wrath was averted. God's wrath was averted. God displayed as a propitiation to turn aside the wrath of God. To turn aside the wrath of God. Now, we don't like hearing about the wrath of God today. That's not a popular topic. We like to hear about the love of God, right? In some churches, you won't even hear a word about the wrath of God at all. That's just as much an attribute of God as the, the love of God is. As the love of God. Now, God's wrath is not just God erupting into a temper tantrum. Now, the, the, the ancient gods, the Greek gods... The pagan gods were often due to, they were all oftentimes just expressed temper tantrums. They just blow up and have an outburst of anger. That's not what's being described when you talk about God's wrath. 
What you're talking about is God's settled, unrelenting, unchanging attitude towards sin. It's the reaction of a holy God against sin. Now, I'm glad God is holy. I wouldn't want a God who was not holy, would you? <laughs> he is holy and righteous. Well, wrath is His reaction against sin. And it's not just some force like a magnetism or something like that, or gravity. No, it is the personal reaction of God. A lot of people today just simply want to write that out of the Bible. They, they don't really like the idea of a God who expresses wrath. But it's over and over in the Scripture, isn't it? We love John 3.16, don't we? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know John 3.36, the last verse in the chapter? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are naturally children of wrath. What that means is that we as a human race, our default setting is that we have rebelled against God, therefore we are destined for God's wrath. That's what it means when it says that we are children of wrath. What turns aside the wrath of God? The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. There's a third big word that I want to talk about. is the word propitiation. Propitiation. That, that's, a big, that's, a, that's a tongue twister for some people. What in the world does it mean? Well, in some uh, newer translations of the Bible... They have changed that word to try to make it something a little easier to, to pronounce and understand. I think we ought to keep the big word and teach people what it means. <laughs> because sometimes we, we lose the meaning a little bit when they, when they try to translate it into something else. It's a big word, but learn what it means. That's the important thing. The International Version says a sacrifice of atonement. That, that's, that's pretty good. But I just like the word propitiation. What it means is it's a reference to turning aside the wrath of someone by the offering of a gift. Turning aside the wrath of someone by the offering of a gift. Small example, a man makes his wife mad. So what does he do on the way home from work? He stops and picks up some flowers and a box of candy and brings it to his wife to appease her wrath, right? That's propitiation. That's propitiation, turning aside the wrath of someone. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. That's the one day out of the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of an animal, a sacrificed animal. And here the Ark of the Covenant there, which contained the, the tables of the Ten Commandments. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. He sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. But the problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system was it was just temporary. And the best book to teach you about, that's the book of Hebrews. It teaches us that the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of what Jesus was going to do when He came. But it was just temporary. Here's what uh, chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 of Hebrews says. Every, piece, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But He, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice... For all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once for all. You want to see that phrase over and over in Hebrews. Once for all. Once for all. 
the Old Testament sacrifices over and over and over and over. Jesus sacrificed once for all. Calvary covers it all. There's never a need for another cross of Calvary because it was, it was covered. They once for all sacrificed by Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, it was like the blood on the mercy seat. It was the blood on the mercy seat. The wrath of God was turned away and our sin was covered forever. Now, you think, what a terrible sacrifice. What a terrible price to have to pay. Why such a terrible price? A book I read several years ago in The Shadow of the Cross. Ray Pritchard says this. Why did God do it this way? Because He is an infinite God of infinite holiness, all sin committed against Him is infinite in magnitude. Only a gift of infinite value could turn away the infinite wrath of God, and only God Himself in the person of the Son could make such an infinite gift. That's why our piddling efforts to turn aside the wrath of God are doomed to failure. God's an infinite God. Therefore, sin against Him is infinite in nature. So only an infinite sacrifice could take care of that, but only God Himself could make that sacrifice. In His Son. In His Son. Martin Luther and his wife Katie were having this discussion one day about the cross. And Katie said, I just can't believe that God would do that to His Son. And Martin Luther replied, but He did. He did. It was voluntary. It was voluntary. An infinite sacrifice for infinite sin against an infinite God. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin. Another book that's been a big influence on me is The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee, great Chinese Christian who lived in the early part of the uh, 20th century. But he talks about the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ being God's dual remedy for sin. We need not only forgiveness for what we have done, but also we need deliverance from what we are. And the blood and the cross accomplishes that. The blood takes care of what we have done. The blood covers our sin. But the cross, we are identified with Jesus Christ and we died with Him. To become a new person in Christ. So the blood is for God to see. The blood covers it all. You remember the, the Passover when the Israelites were in Egypt and God was about to deliver them. He was about to, to take the firstborn of the Egyptians. The death angel was going to pass through and take the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians. And God told the Israelites to take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost and on the sides. And when I see the blood, I what? I will pass over. Where we get the word Passover from. The blood is for Him to see. So, God sees the blood of Christ. And He passes over us. But the cross, we need not only forgiveness for what we've done, we need to be delivered from what we are. We need a change of life. God loves you too much to leave you like you are. Romans talks about that at length in chapter 6. 
You know, baptism identifies a person with Christ. It shows how we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, resurrection. We come forth a new person in Christ. So, sins are forgiven in Christ, but also, God's plan of salvation deals with what we are, which is sinners by nature. We become new people in Christ. That's incredible when you think about it. So God's wrath is averted. But a third thing, you look at verses 25 and 26. The third thing that happened at the cross was this. God's justice was demonstrated. God's justice was demonstrated. You know, why can't God just overlook sin? Why can't you just say, ah, that's okay. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and you know, if they, if they you know, said they were sorry, why couldn't God have just said, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it? Well, here's why. Because God is holy. He cannot allow sin to go undealt with, to be unpunished. If He just kind of forgot about it, He would cease to be a holy and righteous God. You that have been parents, I, I've never been a parent, you know, so it's easy for me to tell you this. <laughs> You've been a parent, you, know, you, you set uh, rules and boundaries for your children, consequences if they break the rules, right? Did you do that? All right. What happens if you don't uphold that, though? If you just overlook the consequences, you know, what happens? Well, then what they did is not that serious after all, right? That's the way it begins to look to the child, right? If you don't hold the boundaries up and, and carry out consequences, well, there's a price that goes with sin. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. In our own justice system, we practice that. We, don't, you know, we don't, just don't set a mass murderer free just because he apologizes for what he did, do we? There's, there are consequences that come. God's a holy God. There's a consequence to sin, and when sin is not dealt with, sin is not punished, well, then it doesn't really seem quite so sinful after all. Not really so terrible after all, but it is. But when we see the price Jesus paid, when you really, truly see the price that Jesus paid, then you realize how awful sin really is and how terrible sin really is and what it's done to us as a human race. God had a plan of salvation whereby He remains holy yet He still provides the gift of holiness. The cross. Somebody has said, is where wrath and mercy meet. We see the wrath of God against sin, but also God's infinite mercy toward us as sinners, don't we? God is both just and the justifier. It says in verse 26, he was both just, he upholds his wrath against sin, but also he is the one who makes us justified. He's just, but also he's the one who provides the way. That, that's amazing when you stop and think about it. The God who came down here in the person of Jesus is the very one who, who took care of it and provided and bears the punishment himself. You know, the cross was not Something God just thought up on the spur of the moment. It's not like when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God suddenly thought, oh no, now I've got to figure out something to do about that. <laughs> no, God was not caught off guard at all. The cross was His plan from the foundation of the earth. From before time began, the cross was in the heart of God. 
a book I mentioned a couple weeks ago. I read a lot of books. <laughs> John R. W. Stott, The Cross of Christ. That book's been a tremendous influence in my life. And here's what he writes about that subject. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old song asked. We must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempts will be as futile as his. For there's blood on our hands. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see the cross as something done by us. Wow. We see, first of all, the cross as something that was done by us. Our sins put him there, so we turn in repentance. We turn in repentance, and then we see the cross something done for us. We bow in worship. We bow in worship. The Lord's Supper helps us remember that. It helps us remember that price that Jesus paid. Before we come to that moment, though, we have a call to commitment. A call to commitment. Maybe you need to come and trust Jesus right now as your Lord and Savior. Come and trust Him if you never have. Maybe you just want to come down here during this time and come down here at the altar and just pray for a moment, just thanking God for what He did, preparing yourself to come to the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Maybe you want to do that during these moments. However God might be speaking to you, you let God lead you. You let God lead you. Let's stand together for a word of prayer as we offer this time of commitment. Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that Calvary does cover it all. The blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, cleanses us from every sin. And Father, I pray if there are people here among us who have never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, Maybe they need to come in day, today and do that. Father, whatever you might be saying to the hearts of people, help us respond as you would have us to. We give these moments to you. In Jesus' name, amen.